there. Thank you so much for deciding to join us for church at Union Chapel online today. My name is Alexa Rollman and I'm our kids pastor. And I'm Kenzie Harris and I'm our 456 pastor. As a reminder, Union Chapel has made the difficult decision to suspend all in-person services and gatherings on campus until further notice. Um, the best way to stay up to date is by checking our website at unionchapel.com. We would love to know that you're joining us online. There are really easy ways that you can do this. You can check in on the Union Chapel app or you can follow the link in the chat below. Here in just a few moments, we'll continue worshiping with you online, but we wanted to take just a second to talk to you about how kids in 456 plan to continue doing ministry for your kids during this time. We encourage you as parents to like both of us on Facebook, Kids at Union Chapel and 456 at Union Chapel for Bible teaching, lesson videos, activities, and discussion questions for you and your kids. We are truly committed to continuing ministry for your kids and we would love to have them join us. Lastly, Serve is Union Chapel's week-long local mission trip. During this week, we encourage three-year-olds through 18-year-olds to join us here on campus for biblical teaching, outreaches, worship, all sorts of fun things. We also provide leadership opportunities for adults. This week will be happening June 22nd through the 26th right here at Union Chapel. If you would like to sign up and join in on the fun, there's a link below in the chat or you can sign up online at unionchapel.com. Continue worshiping with us. Good morning, church. Welcome to service online today with Union Chapel. We're so glad you've joined us today. As I mentioned on my midweek uh, video update, we uh, had over a thousand hits on our website last week, and so we're happy to have so many people joining us. Thank you for being with us here today. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're doing okay. Let me just add a couple of announcements. Uh, just a reminder that since uh, our local government has closed down uh, the city for a while now, uh, we're complying with those mandates and just that uh, to let you know that the offices will be closed. Uh, now you can still call us and we're still here and we're taking calls. And if you have a need, if you have a concern, you can certainly call us. You need some insight into the technology or figuring out how to give online, those sorts of things. Feel free to call 288 83. We'll be glad to take your call. We're on, we're on duty. Um, also, with regard to online giving, thanks for so many of you who have responded to that so favorably. As you know, the mission of the church continues, and we appreciate your willingness to give. Understand that some of your income streams have been negatively affected uh, by the shutdowns, and certainly understand that. Uh, some of you, though, have regular income, and what a 
What a great opportunity for you to be generous at a time like this. When one of our family members are suffering, the others of us can help pick them, pick them up. So thank you for your faithfulness to give, your consistency that way. We appreciate it so much. As you know, we're in the middle of a series now during this Lenten season on the passion of Jesus, these last hours of his life leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection. And we've been studying the Gospel of Matthew as we've tried to understand these important moments, historic times. And so today we've chosen as our text from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. I'm going to read for us verses 30 to 56. And again, our theme is instead of me, and today's subject, taken for me. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, uh, we'll project the words on the screen, and I invite you to stand as you're able. That's our custom, so thanks for doing that. Matthew 26 and beginning at verse 30. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. And then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And now the betrayer has arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, arrested him, and with that one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion? 
You have come out with swords and clubs to capture me. Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples deserted him and fled. May God inspire and encourage us through his word today. Thank you so much. You may be seated. One of the first things that we acknowledge from this scene is that Jesus uh, does not seem to be going to his death in an attitude or a spirit of defiance or bravado, you know, the kind of spirit or attitude that we might have expected, perhaps, from him. Uh, in fact, if I may be so bold, he actually seems like he's weak and, and scared. Um, it's interesting that you can contrast his demeanor with some of the other martyrs of history uh, with their fist in the face of the evil empire, you know, defiantly saying, I'm not afraid of death, bring it on, I'll never back down sort of thing. I mean, we think about the movies Braveheart or Gladiator where you see men, women dying, you know, with this, uh, this indignation towards those who are trying to kill them. Socrates as another example of history who was cool and stoic as he went to his execution, as they offered this drink of hemlock, this poison to kill him, he was, uh, he was very cool, even cracking jokes up to his death. Um, many Jewish heroes around the time of Jesus went to their martyrdom in a similar way. Most of us have heard the names Spartacus or Maccabees. Yeah, uh, many of Jesus' followers died bravely and defiantly. One of my favorite stories is the story of Polycarp. This was a guy who was a disciple, a student of John, one of the original disciples, apostles. And Polycarp was 86 years old, and they were going to burn him at the stake. And they had him lashed to the stake and asked him, do you have any final words? And he said, yes. And this is what he said. You think I'm afraid of this fire? It burns for just a moment and is gone. You should be afraid of the fires of hell. I'm not scared of these temporary flames. You should be afraid of the eternal ones. And then he said, come on, boys, bring the fire. Wow, it's pretty, pretty amazing, pretty bold, pretty defiant. But here we see Jesus approach death with a different sort of spirit. We are, we are caused to stop and ask why. Why this demeanor from him? Why is this happening this way? Uh, Martin Luther of the Protestant Reformation said, never do we see a man fear death quite like this. Yeah. So what is this about? I mean, just days ahead of this, Jesus is very cool and calm. He's, he's uh, headed to Jerusalem. Peter and the others say, no, we can't go to Jerusalem. It's not safe there. And Jesus just looks very stoically, very calmly and says, no, no, I have to go to Jerusalem. And so there he is. And in just a few hours after this episode in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is before Pilate, and he is very calm, very straightforward with him, um, very defiant in the face of his accusers. So what is happening here? What's going on in Gethsemane? This is a very important question. In verse 37, it gives us a bit of a clue. It says there that he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So th there's something that's happened, a switch that's been, that's been flipped. There's there's a moment where Jesus is coming to terms with something that completely unnerves him. It, it, it overwhelms him. He's filled with sorrow and he's troubled. 
uh, the Greek there, the original language means horrified. It's almost like uh, walking into a room where someone you love or care about has been murdered. I mean, it's just shocking. It's just overwhelming to him. In fact, Luke's account in his gospel suggests that Jesus in Gethsemane is, is sweating like great drops of blood. Uh, that's a, actually a, a condition called hematridosis. This is where there is such uh, distress that a person can experience that they will, that they will uh, have capillaries burst and actually emanate blood as a result of that. So he's, he's horrified. Think, think about this. He's horrified to the level that his capillaries are bursting. It, it's nearly killing him. What had he seen? What had he experienced that troubled him so? Well, let me just uh, begin with this thought. It's the first point on the outline. I know many of you have your app out and you want to fill in this blank. We are confronted by this event. We're confronted by what Jesus is doing here. Um, in verse 39, when he called out to his father, here's something that, that we know is happening. The father is silent. Think about that. Jesus and the father have been together for all eternity. They have had intimacy with one another. During the, the period of Jesus' life on the earth, any time he called out to God, God always responded to him. There was, there was affection there. There was intimacy. There was immediate uh, response to any kind of interaction that Jesus would have with the Father. But now, for the first time in all of eternity, in all of history, Jesus calls out to the Father, and he hears silence. It's impossible to comprehend what's going on here, but Jesus now, Matthew says he, he goes a, a, a distance and he falls, falls to the ground. He's so distraught. He goes back to the disciples and he says, please, I, I need someone to be with me right now. So he, he's feeling this, this effect of isolation and loneliness and abandonment. And, and he's, almost, he's almost like a small child here. His father's not responding to him. And so he goes to his friends uh, we think about a small child who maybe is afraid of the dark or, or uh, who is ill and wants, wants consolation or facing surgery and wants to be close to their mother. There, there is this paternal kind of child kind of reaction to Jesus. And when Jesus goes back to the disciples, what does he do? He finds them asleep. They're asleep. Now, comprehend the moment. The, the souls of everyone who's ever lived in all of history are being weighed in the balance. The eternal destiny of every human being who's ever been alive is now being weighed in the balance of the decisions that Jesus is about to make and the disciples are asleep. Uh, what a revealing picture. <laughs> a revealing picture of us, perhaps. Uh, and of course, that's another sermon for another day. But asleep they are, and he prays, Father, if there's any other way, save me from this. What's he get? Silence. Silence. Yeah. He is utterly alone. Have you ever felt utterly alone? Completely isolated? No support? No care? No affirmation? Jesus understands utter aloneness. He's feeling rejection. Uh, imagine it in these terms. What if, what if your child came to you and said, I, ha 
I, I, I'm desperate, I have a need. I mean, imagine for a moment if you, it's even possible because you know what you would do if your child needed anything. What wouldn't you do? You would do anything to help them. But in this case, the son goes to the father, I need help. I need an answer. And the silence that he feels makes him feel totally rejected. Imagine, imagine you, all of us who are parents can feel that the, the internal angst that's created by imagining if one of your child says, please, I need your help, I'm desperate. And you say to them, I don't even know who you are. Go away from me. I mean, you can feel that as a parent. But imagine, imagine the impact it would have on the child. And this is what Jesus is feeling. What it must have been like to lose the infinite love of the Father that you have known for all eternity. It's not even possible to describe this, is it? And it's something that, that in one moment Jesus actually experienced the equivalence of an eternity in hell for us. Hell being defined as separation from God eternally, part, uh, separated from God's fellowship, God's communion, God's closeness, God's care. When I was younger, I always thought that what made Jesus' death so bad was the physical horrors, and indeed they were horrible. Cicero, a uh, first century Roman uh, statesman and author, historian, describes the crucifixion in some of his writings. He said people would be beaten until they were barely recognizable scourging with this cat of nine tails, so brutal, so, so horrific. He said it was, wasn't uncommon to see a, a piece of rib go flying or people being actually partially disemboweled by the scourging, nine-inch nails, in Jesus' case, this crown of thorns, horrific suffering. The essence of Calvary, though, wasn't this physical suffering. In fact, the gospel writers don't even refer to it. They, they don't go into the gory details. They, they, they kind of dismiss the whole physical portion of the suffering of Jesus because it wasn't the primary point of suffering. The primary point of suffering for Jesus was that God totally abandoned him, left him totally alone, totally isolated. This is, uh, if you will, the God-forsaken God totally alone in the world. Let me put this on the screen for you. In Gethsemane, Jesus looked full into the cup of God's wrath and it overwhelmed him so badly that it almost killed him. Now, it's interesting to note that Gethsemane literally means an oil press. Isn't that curious? Literally, in Jesus' case, squeezing the life out of him. Amazing. So he prayed three times. We read this in our text. In Matthew's gospel, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way, let it pass. And Jesus had never prayed another prayer that hadn't been answered, yet this one was not. And the reason God didn't answer his prayer is because there was no other way. Jesus prayed, if there is, if there's any other way, if there's any way this cup can pass from me, God doesn't answer is because... There is no other way. There is no other way. Isaiah 51 verse 17 says that God's wrath against our sin is like a toxic poison that's kept in a cup. Think about this. 
And as that cup was offered to us, Jesus steps in and takes the cups out of our hand, drinks it to the dregs, drinks it all, takes it in our place. J. Edwards, Christian scholar, described it like a dam breaking in Jesus' life. Charles Spurgeon compared it to a gnat being run over by a freight train. If you had been there, if I had been there, I may have want to step in front of Jesus and say, stop. But he would have said to me, no, Greg, no, no, this cup was your cup. And there's no way that you can drink of it, the wrath of God, but I take it for you. And I drink it on your behalf. Romans 5 verse 8 says, but God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's an amazing truth, isn't it? One of the accounts says that an angel came to comfort him. We don't know what the angel said to him, but we do know that the writer of Hebrews reports to us this amazing phrase when it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the suffering, the shame and the cross. The joy, really? The joy set before him? How do you get joy? How do you get joy as a motivation out of this story, this moment? There's only one explanation for it. There's only one way to comprehend it. Jesus got joy of it because he knew about you. He knew he was doing it for you. And that's what brought him joy. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are that God has lavished his love on us. We are called his children. This was the joy that was set before him. I love the word from the old hymn. I've put this on the screen for you. I just love this. I stand amazed. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And I wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned, unclean, for me, it was in the garden. He prayed, not my will, but thine. He had no tears for his own griefs, but sweat drops of blood for mine. He took my sin and my sorrow and made them his very own. He bore my burden to Calvary and suffered, died alone. See, there was no other way to save us. This was the only way. And so he did it gladly. He did it because it's the only way. Now, let me ask you something. I want you to be really sober with me right now. Very serious about this. Can you think of any greater insult to Jesus than to say that there are really multiple ways of salvation? Stop and think about that. Now, I know you think you're being compassionate and tolerant and open-minded when you say that there are multiple ways to God. You know, some of you, some of you have seen, or maybe you've done this, put, put little coexist bumper stickers on your car, you know, with the symbols of the major religions, philosophies in the world, you know, and coexist is the term. But is there any greater insult to Jesus that Jesus looked at God, his father, and asked this question, if there's any other way, let this cup pass for me, and imagine that there are other ways, many ways to God, thousand roads to God. Just be sincere and any road will get you there. 
And that's, if that's true, and Jesus asks three times, if there's any other way, let this pass for me. And God knows there's lots of ways and he doesn't tell Jesus. Well, yeah, really there are plenty of ways, not just this way. What kind of a God would that be? So here's my advice to you. Stop trying to act like you're more loving than Jesus and stop arguing about this and just stand amazed. Just stand amazed that God has made a way for us. Stand amazed with this Jesus, the Nazarene. Stand amazed at his love. Stand amazed at his mercy. Stand amazed at his grace poured out to us. This passage shows us the incredible love that Jesus has for us. Amazing. So we're confronted by this. We have to take honestly and seriously this this whole context. We're confronted by what Jesus did. And then here's the second point. I just want you to put this in in your outline we are then invited to respond. Now, Jesus approaches uh, this prayer time in Gethsemane with all of the sobriety that indicates the weight of the world. And yet, in the context of that pressure, here comes Judas. Judas now with those who are going to arrest him. The one I kiss, he's the one, arrest him. And Judas walks up to Jesus, and what does Jesus say to him? Do what you have to do, friend. He's always being sarcastic. No, no, he's not being sarcastic at all. He's being totally sincere. He sees Judas as his friend. He knows full well he's going to betray him, but he's still extending grace to him. Now, here's here's a patient warning. Jesus was faithful to Judas all the way to the end. He's giving him one more chance. Here's what I want you to understand. If you die and go to hell, listen, if you do that, it won't be because God has turned his back on you. No, no. The last voice you'll hear as you step off into hell will be the voice of Jesus saying, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. I'll forgive you doesn't matter what you've done. Peter responds in this moment by pulling out his sword and whacking off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And Jesus immediately says to him, don't do that. (laughs) You're missing the whole point here. Uh, He said, he said, I could summon 12 legions of angels. Let me give you some perspective on that. Uh, A legion is about 5,000, 5,000 soldiers in a legion in an army. So 12 legions of angels, that's 12 times, that's 60,000 angels. Let me give you some perspective on that. In Revelation chapter seven, we see the final judgment of God on the earth. And we see in Revelation seven that it takes four angels to wipe out all of the armies of the earth. Four angels to wipe out all of the powers on the earth. Jesus now is suggesting to Peter, I got 60,000 of these things at my disposal. So in other words, Jesus is saying, Uh, Look, I'm going to die now, but it's not because I've been caught in a bad situation. It's not because, oh gosh, you caught me without my security team. Please. Jesus is making it clear to Peter. And so he reminds Peter that this is all according to the plan. It's foretold by the prophets. It's it's throughout the Old Testament. For example, Zechariah 9 
tells us that the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Check it out. Isaiah 53 tells us that Messiah would be wounded for our transgressions. Psalm 22 explains that Messiah's clothes would be divided up. His hands and feet would be pierced and that none of his bones would be broken. Those references and nearly 300 other Old Testament references with direct connection with the life and the times of Jesus Christ. And then all the disciples deserted him and ran away. Let me tell you something about Peter. Peter doesn't understand the gospel, not at this point. He doesn't understand the substitutional nature of it. He's still into this self-salvation. How do I know that? He, he believes that if he can just be honorable enough, good enough, right enough, follow the rules enough, that this is what God expects of him and this will please Jesus and he'll get to heaven as a result of that. That's why he pulls out his sword. Now follow this, listen to this. If you think you can be good enough to save yourself, that always leads to bearing of the sword against others. Now don't push this away too, too quickly. Listen, when you think that you're one of the good guys, you will look down on other people in judgment and you will think you have the right to judge them or to pull the sword on them. According to Jesus, though, there are no good guys and bad guys. There's, there's only rebels against God. So, so God doesn't go around going, you're good and you're bad, you're good and you're bad. He looks at all of us and he says, look, you all have rebelled, sinned, fallen short, and so I've come to save you, all of you. There's not just the good folks and the bad folks. There's all the folks who need God's healing grace, his saving grace. Peter, like most of us, tend to live our lives seeing the world in two categories. Follow this. The bad guys and us, the rest of us. Whatever group you're in, name your group. Name your group. Your side is good. The other side is bad. And we want to wield the sword against them. Maybe it's not a literal sword, but we stand in judgment because we're good, we're right, they're bad, and they're wrong. Scripture is clear. It teaches us that there is no you and them. There's only we. But the good news is that God has died for all of us. And this is the lesson that we learn. Jesus didn't just die for you. Follow it now. He died instead of you. He died instead of you. And this is the great news of the gospel. And another thing Peter didn't understand is he didn't understand, not only did he miss the whole point of salvation, he, he didn't understand the point of the cross. He's trying to keep Jesus from going to the cross. And so he doesn't get this. And that's why he's, he's still pulling swords on people. And the other thing that Peter doesn't get that we oftentimes overlook and miss ourselves is the power, the kingdom power that is at work in this situation. He picks up the sword because he thinks, like most people think, that, that this is how you bring change to the world. It's through coercive power. And so we get caught up into this. Uh, we, we think that political philosophy or political power are the difference makers in the world. But can't we see from this story how wrong that is, how wrong that worldview is, how, how short-sighted that is? I want you to think about this. Uh, there are people watching today, and you don't, you're not a follower of Jesus. 
you're not a Christian person. You just tuned in, you know, you stumbled onto this website today or, or for, for whatever reason, not by accident perhaps, and you're listening. I want to challenge you with a thought right now. Even if you're not religious, I want to ask you the most important question you may ever answer, and that is this. Who is the most influential person in the history of the world? Be honest about this. Can, can you use critical thinking here? Who's the most influential person who has ever lived, who has changed more societies, more lives than any other person? And of course, the answer is clear. There isn't a close second. The, the answer to the question is obvious. The answer is Jesus Christ. He's the most influential person who's ever lived. Now, let me ask you a question. How many elections did he win? How big was his endowment? How many lands did he conquer? These are good questions, aren't they? Literally, he had nothing. He, he gave his life in sacrificial service. I mean, compare that to, for example, Muhammad, who's the founder of Islam. Muhammad spent his whole life, his whole career, riding with mercenaries and conquering cities. I mean, this is, this is what he did. Jesus was born in a manger to a little peasant girl. He, he washed his disciples' feet. Who is this guy? What's he doing? Salvation didn't come flying in on Air Force One. It, it came through the womb of this poor immigrant woman. The cross means that the world's values about power are all wrong. They're all wrong. Totally misapplied, misunderstood. The way to really change the world is by serving people, not conquering them. We change people by speaking the hope, the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ to them in the power of the Holy Spirit and serving them with love and forgiveness. We're talking here about kingdom power, kingdom power. When it comes to believers extending the kingdom of God, that's what happened. It's not by the power of the sword. It's never been that way or the power of talent or money by, by a greater power. And that is the power of the cross, the power of the cross. Go back to any great move of God, any time in history, and you'll see the people of God who embrace the way of the cross these are the ones who've made a difference in the world, not through superior force or superior riches, but the power of the cross. Let me illustrate. Many of you have heard the name Jim Elliott. Uh, he, Nate Sate, and three others went to the Aka tribe of Ecuador. Now, not coincidentally, we have ministry initiatives in Ecuador right now. So we have some, some context here. It might be the most significant missionary story of the last century. Basically, it goes like this. In 1956, a few, after a few years of trying to reach one of the most unreached and violent tribes in Ecuador, the Aka Indians, Jim Elliott and four other men landed their little plane on a beach to establish contact. The first meeting went well. But at their second meeting on January the 8th, 1956, a group of Aka warriors attacked these five men and killed them, stabbed them with spears, left their bodies floating in the river. Now their story has a beautiful ending. Listen, a few years later, the martyred men's wives and children continued the effort to reach the Aka tribe. They established contact with them. They eventually built schools, hospitals for them. They taught them the Bible. In fact, listen to this. Steve Saint, the son of Nate Saint, one of the martyred men, led to Christ and baptized the very man that had killed his father. They had, 
They adopted him into their family as a surrogate grandfather for his kids to replace their murdered father. What? We're talking about kingdom power. Here's a part of the story most people don't know. The moment they were murdered, Jim Elliott and his friends were armed. Stop and think. They had loaded guns with them. But when they recovered the bodies, they saw that not a single shot had been fired. In fact, in one of the recovered journals, Jim Elliott recorded that several days before the five men had decided they would never fire a weapon at the tribesmen who didn't know Jesus. Now watch this. Steve Saint, son of one of the martyred men, explained, my dad knew that if he died, he would go to heaven. He also knew that if the men attacking them died, they wouldn't go to heaven. So he did for them what Jesus did for him. When it came to the hour of decision, he decided not to take life, but to offer it. Look at this statement on the screen. The church, the true church is built not through the power of the sword, the power of the cross, the power of the cross. Let me give you one more illustration. We'll be done. This comes from the life of Branch Rickey. Some of you know that name. He was a devout Christian man. Um, some decades ago, just after World War II, Branch Rickey became the general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers. And in 1945, some of you know this story, he famously hired Jackie Robinson to be the first black player to play in the major leagues. And he famously told Jackie Robinson that he would have to have the strength not to fight back against bigotry and racism, at least not to fight hatred with hatred because he would show the world that there was someone, capital S, someone behind his cause. And with the supreme faith of a guy named Branch Rickey and the amazing courage and grace of a guy named Jackie Robinson, it was that spirit that turned the tide. Peter and Judas, now these two characters in these first two messages in this series have a lot in common. Neither of them understood, understood the cross. Judas wanted to see Jesus go to the cross, get rid of him, willing to sell him out. As we talked about last week, all of us have a price. So well, I'll follow Jesus up to that line, but not, not beyond. We identify with Jesus, Judas that way. And Peter, Peter wanted to protect Jesus from the cross. He would do anything to keep Jesus from being hurt. Both men are clueless that the cross is why Jesus came. Jesus had to take the cup of God's wrath. There was no other way. He didn't come to wield the sword, but indeed to step underneath it for all of us. He, he, he came to drink of the cup of God's wrath that was designed for all of us, each one of us. And instead of us, he drank it for us. It was the only way. One more statement will be done. Look on the screen. True salvation is not something we can achieve, but something we must receive. Would you pause now in prayer and think about that statement?
as you're in prayer this morning, uh, please, could I ask you, don't say the really popular but silly thing that all religions basically teach the same thing. Please don't do that. Christianity turns religion upside down because it says that salvation is not something we can achieve, but something we must receive as a gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace have you been saved through faith that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not the result of works, lest any man boast. Remember, Jesus went to the garden alone so that he could purchase salvation for you, so that he could drink your cup so that he could bear your sword. It's my question to you this morning. Have you received? Have you received this gift of life? Have you received this forgiveness? Have you received Jesus and his work, his finished work into your life? He walked into, into Gethsemane, that garden for you. Now my question to you this morning, are you ready to take the first step for him Maybe you're listening to my voice today, joining us online, and you say, I think I'm ready. What's the step? Well, the first step is to receive Christ. Remember, salvation can't be achieved. It must be received as a gift. But as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God, even those that believe. So I want to lead you in prayer, and I want you to pray this prayer out loud after me. Everybody's going to pray it out loud, no matter where you are, who you're with, pray it out loud with me. Dear gracious God, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for taking the cup of God's wrath for me. That you died instead of me. You were taken for me. So Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. I want to live for you. I want to serve you. I want to know you. Help me from this day forward to give you the best part of my life as a reflection that you have given your best part for my life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Now, just before the blessing, let me just uh, remind you to be at peace. Don't panic, don't be afraid. God has got us in the palm of his hand. He is with us. He's promised never to leave us nor forsake us. So stay calm. Listen, humans don't respond well, make good decisions when they're panicked. So don't panic, stay calm, assess the circumstances day by day, and then respond prudently and faithfully to those, to those uh, opportunities. Let me just remind you, if you need some help, need assistance, call us. We're here, and I know that God's, God's with you as well. So be of good courage. Receive the blessing now. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Peace in your heart, peace in your mind, peace in your soul, peace forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. Be at peace.